Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Well, welcome here. If you are uh, just joining us for the first time or if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Andrew and I am uh, the lead pastor here, but one of many pastors in this church who um, God has just called and invited to, uh, to just trust him and follow him with where we're going. And we've been in a a series in the book of Ephesians, uh, which is in the New Testament. It's a letter from Paul. You can recap a lot of that by just going online. If you just go on to the website, mp.church, you can find all of the sermons there. Um, and uh, you can subscribe on Apple uh, Podcasts and all of that stuff. But today we're, we're going to continue in this journey. We're moving forward. Um, slowly, but, but we're moving forward slowly because what Paul is talking about, what the writer of this book is talking about is so grand and otherworldly. It, is, it takes a lot of time to digest and to process. And the things that Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians are not just sort of pedantic, um, materialistic, humanistic, rationalistic kinds of thoughts. They are ideas that elevate us beyond the here and now, beyond the natural and into the supernatural, really. Paul's idea or his worldview is one that commingles and mixes the supernatural with the natural. And Sometimes it's really hard for us to grasp because we live in a post-enlightenment culture, uh, not only post-enlightenment, post-Christian, uh, post-religious, really, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, but Paul's worldview is one that, that mixes the supernatural and the natural. And what I find interesting about our Christian culture is that we do everything we can. It seems like a lot of times we do everything we can to make the supernatural natural. And the Bible doesn't even attempt to do that. The Bible does not attempt to bring God down to a palatable level that we could understand, to, to bring God into this form and function that fits within you know, our perfect worldview and our culture and all of this stuff. It doesn't even attempt to do that. And we're gonna see a little bit why that is today, but um, I don't know about you, but I, I live for moments where I feel like I'm in a space or in an environment or time that is bigger than myself, one that takes me out of sort of the tunnel vision that, that I live in often. And a couple weeks ago, I had an opportunity to do something that I love to do when I get the chance, and that was climb a mountain. And it was in the, on the West Coast, and um, there's just something about the mountains for me that when, when I get in them, I just, they just cause me to come alive. And they just inspire me to think of things that are grander than I normally think of. Like, I know that, um, you know, Whirlpool and the, uh, you know, Niagara Gorge is amazing. Niagara Falls is amazing. But there's just something to me about the mountains 
that just makes me stop and think and wonder. And so a few weeks ago, I was climbing one with uh, my brother-in-law and some friends, and uh, it was incredible. It was a perfect day outside, which is rare for the lower mainland on the West Coast. Perfect day. Um, we were climbing. It, the weather was beautiful. It was warm. And uh, we get to the summit after about, you know, an hour and a half kind of straight up hike. And, um, and I'm just standing there, just stare, like I, I'm doing everything I can to take in everything that I can see. And I'm looking, you know, to, in one direction, looking out over the Fraser Valley and, and, and out over the fjords, really, that, that are in the lower mainland. And in the other direction, you're looking south to the Olympic mountain range and Mount Baker and these just majestic peaks. And it was something that, that um, just inspired me to just really reflect on the greatness and the grandness of God. And then like I would, I sat down and brought things right down to earth by eating a spicy Italian Subway sub at the summit of the mountain. <laughs> we, uh, we packed them. That, that single-handedly actually propelled me the last quarter of the way, was waiting for my spicy Italian sub. And we actually did see some bears too, and, um, and had wondered if they would like spicy food at all. If it came down to it, we were ready to whip those out and uh, feed the bears with them. But um, today we're going to continue this look at um, this grand idea and vision that Paul has. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of Ephesians, which is in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, um, most of the verses will be on the screen. Some of them won't be today. But um, we're going to start in chapter 2. And this particular Sunday might be what we call open seat Sunday, meaning maybe next week there'll be a lot of open seats because we're going to tackle some really tough things that Paul has to say this week. So I'm not sure how many of you are going to, are going to come back, but we're going to tackle this nonetheless. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Offensive statement number one by Paul. Once you were dead <laughs> because of your disobedience and your many sins... It's not beating around the bush there. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. I'm just going to stop there for a minute. Paul does this amazing thing right off the bat in chapter 2. He contrasts our humanity with the supernatural. And he's doing this all over in the book of Ephesians. This is another way that Paul brings us into this meta-narrative that God has for us. He contrasts kind of like everyday life on earth, the struggles we face, the things that um, um, we engage in with this meta-narrative that's so much bigger than us. Last week, if you were here, um, we kind of, we covered a, a lot of ground and even myself uh, through the whole week, I was just processing everything that was said. And we're going to kind of recap a little bit of it. 
But today I want to propose to you this idea that Paul is about to bring to us. And that is that at some point in time, there was a rupture in the heavenly places that also caused a rupture and a tearing on the earth. That everything we experience in our normal everyday life right now is a result of something that took place in heavenly realms. In the unseen spiritual realm, there was some kind of rupture or tearing that has left us in the fallout with everything that we experience today. And so Paul begins this contrast and he uses words like sin and death and Satan and the devil to begin to give us clues as to why we're experiencing the kind of life that we are. We're gonna recap. Paul brings us right back up and so we're gonna head right back up. First of all, Paul says uh, that we were dead in our sin and under the control and the power of the commander of the power of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of all those who refuse to obey God. 22 times in the first chapter and these first three verses of chapter two, 22 times Paul references and mentions God. What we understand and what we need to remind ourselves is that the Bible, although it is written for us, is not written to us. Here's a news flash for us. You and I aren't the center of the Bible. You and me aren't the thing that everything revolves around. In fact, Paul is bringing us right now back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, which starts with, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Before anything that we know ever existed, God. Before we had our struggles and our temptations and our trials and all this stuff, God. Before we were blaming him for the stuff that's going wrong in our life, God. He existed before anything that we know existed. And if we're going to understand properly what Paul is talking about, we need to elevate our thinking and stop making everything about us. We have this terribly narcissistic propensity to turn everything in life into me and how it affects me. We look at the Bible and it's all about me. We look at our struggles and our sin and all of this stuff and it's all about me. And Paul says, no, it's all about God. So who is this God that Paul is talking about? Paul and the writers of scripture identify this God, this most high God, as a unique supernatural being that has no equal or no rival. He's omniscient, he knows everything. He's omnipotent, he's all powerful. He is unrivaled in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. Psalm 33, verse six to 15, I wanna read that for you. If you wanna turn there with me, you can. 
says this about God. We're going to rattle off a bunch of these here. Psalm 33, 6 to 15. So speaking of God, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in their vast reservoirs. Let the whole world fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of him. For when he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. The Lord frustrates the plans of the nations and thwarts all their schemes, but the Lord's plans stand firm forever. His intentions can never be shaken. What joy for the nation whose God is the Lord, whose people he has chosen as, it is, as his inheritance. The Lord looks down from heaven and sees the whole human race. From his throne, he observes all who live on the earth. He made their hearts. So he understands everything they do. So this is the God of the Bible. Psalm 104 says this. O Lord, my God, how great you are. You are robed with honor and majesty. You are dressed in a robe of light. You stretch out the starry curtain of the heavens. You lay out the rafters of your home in the rain clouds. It goes on to just describe the immense majesty of God. Colossians, we did a series on that last year. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 talks about the greatness of God. And it actually talks about Jesus as God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. God is above all. There's no equal to him in the spiritual realm or in the physical realm. He stands unique and alone. But what we learned last week is that God is not the only occupant of the spiritual realm. God has actually created spiritual beings. God has made, like we're going to discover today, a spiritual family and a physical family. And God's spiritual family preceded us, his physical family. Before he made the heavens and the earth, God at some point in eternity past created the heavenly realms and spiritual beings that he existed with as his family. He's called the father of all gods. The first initiator of everything else he created spiritual beings, and you can find them referenced through Scripture all over the place. Not just angels. Angels, is uh, actually that word is specifically means messenger. It's more like an assignment given than a type of spiritual being. Bible talks about seraphim and cherubim and talks about living creatures. And all, there's, you can read them through uh, Isaiah and Revelation and Ezekiel and all of these amazing parts of Scripture. God created these spiritual beings as his sons. I want to read to you a few verses that we looked at last week. Psalm 82. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings, or in your translation, it may say sons of God. How long will you hand down unjust decisions? He's talking now to this spiritual court, this spiritual council that he has created 
to surround himself with. Give justice to the poor and orphans. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them. He's giving instructions to his supernatural beings for how he wants them to conduct themselves on the earth. This is a great example, and there's many more that illustrate the truth and the reality that spiritual beings are not this autonomous, um, non-thinking, non-volition-involved beings. Uh, Spiritual beings have a will, they have intellect, they have capacity and power. This is so essential for us to understand. It is essential in Paul's thinking to know that when this tearing happened in the heavenly places, it was, it was a result of one will rising up against another. It was the result of spiritual beings who invoked their will against the will of God and tore through heaven with destruction. It goes on to say, God says in verse six, I say you are gods, you are all children of the most high God. We talked last week about the Hebrew words in there, and we're not gonna go back to that, but they're both called Elohim. And most accurately, the word Elohim in the Hebrew language just means a divine being. So all divine beings are Elohim, but not all divine beings are the most high. There's a difference there. So there's a a sameness, but then there's a difference. And when God created the spiritual realm, he created them lower than himself. This is so important as we look at what's happened in our world. God isn't warring against an opposing equal. There's not another force that he's going up that is equal and opposite to himself. God is contending with a spiritual reality and a spiritual rebellion against him that is below him and underneath him, not equal to him. So God has a spiritual family called sons of God. This spiritual family is also called the army of the Lord. There's these stories in the Old Testament, and we don't have time to read them, that are fascinating. 2 Kings 6, 15 to 17. 2 Samuel 5, 22 to 24, a fascinating story of God's angelic army manifesting themselves on the earth. Literally, did you know this, that the Bible actually alludes, so get this, this is like, Um, You know, take any of your favorite Marvel Universe, DC Universe movies or whatever, that the Bible alludes to this unseen spiritual realm having control and influence in the nations as they wage war against each other. The story in the Old Testament of Israel going up uh, to war against a nation called Moab. And as the Moabites were being defeated, the king of Moab sacrificed his firstborn son to his God, not the God, to his God. When he sacrificed his firstborn son to his God, it turned the tides of the war. It actually drove the Israelites back into retreat. 
There's this idea in scripture that we're involved in a supernatural conflict and battle that's waging war all over the place. That what we see in our natural is not the only thing to see. That there's a bigger picture and a grander perspective at play. That God as the most high God is a player amongst others in this. There's other stories we can read. I'll read to you just really quickly, just because I've been reading in there the last few days. The book of Job in the Old Testament. Fascinating story. If you want to get a little bit of a window into what in the world we're talking about here. Job chapter 1, verse 6. One day, the members of the heavenly court, or the council of God, the sons of God, came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. So, just think about that. I'll keep reading. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. They have a further conversation, and we're not going to get into the whole book of Job here. But it's this incredible insight into the spiritual reality and realm. That there are forces above and beyond our power or our ability to comprehend that are at work in your life and in my life, in nations and countries and regions on this earth. So God is the most high. God has created a spiritual family before the foundation of the earth. God has an army that actually executes his judgments, that actually works on his behalf. He's the most high above all other gods. I'm gonna show you really quickly just a few Psalms in the book of Psalms, a few of the things that, that the writers of Psalms have to say about God. I think it, we have it up on the screen here. Psalm 86, eight. No one is like you among the gods. Psalm 96, he is to be revered above all gods. Psalm 135, he is above all gods. Psalm 29, he is to be praised by his heavenly beings. Psalm 97, 7, every god must bow to him. Psalm 97, 9, he is supreme over all the earth, exalted far above all gods. Psalm 95, 3, I love this. God is a king above all other gods. When it comes to the supernatural realm, God has no equal. He commands the worship and reverence of everything in the supernatural realm and conversely everything in our physical realm. He's far above. Ephesians 1.21 says this. We actually read this a little bit uh, the other day, Ephesians 1.21 says this, he's far above, as I turn and can't remember the exact wording, far above, you got it, Andrew, all right, 
far above any ruler, I knew that, or authority, or power, or leader, or anything else. Do you know that word any in the original Greek is a really interesting word. It actually means entire, whole, complete, every kind of, or the idea of totality. That God is far above any other God, any other spiritual force. There's none that direct God in what he should do. That's really important for us to grasp as Paul begins to talk about our identity in Christ. He begins to use language of those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, those who repent and believe in the name of Jesus, who follow Jesus, who surrender their lives to them, the New Testament begins to talk about them with the language of sons of God, that we've been adopted by God into his family. There's like this uh, triangle uh, graphic we used last week. I don't know if you guys have that, if we could just show that in the spiritual realm, that everything is below God. In the Old Testament, the sons of God are most of the time referencing this council that we've been talking about, this council of spiritual beings. But you know that in the New Testament, the language shifts. And because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us, The Bible calls us sons and daughters of God, that we've been adopted into the family of God. We've been taken out of slavery from the enemy's family and placed into the family of God. We've been called sons of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, this is really wacky phrase, and he's he's upset with the people in the church because they're taking each other to court and they're getting all worked up about very trivial things. And he says this line there, he says, don't you know that one day you will judge the angels? One day, in eternity, you and I will have more authority than the angels. We, as sons and daughters of God in that middle section, will actually be sitting to rule and reign with him, his earthly family connected to his spiritual family the way that he had always designed and intended it. His heart right from the beginning was to combine and interface his earthly and spiritual family to fulfill his purposes and desires on the earth. The New Testament calls those who know and accept Jesus sons and daughters of God. We have a divine spiritual inheritance. This is the basis for everything Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians. A book about the the cosmic battle raging and the reality that our identity is not rooted in ourself and it's not rooted in our culture and it's not rooted in the here and the now, but our identity is rooted as sons and daughters of the Most High. That in some fashion, as Jesus lived this way on earth, that in some fashion, God wants to actually bring his kingdom come now here on the earth. That as sons and daughters, he's calling us to live in the spiritual reality of who we are. 
the authority that we have, the life that we have in the spiritual realm to actually pull that down from heaven and live it out on the earth. But he says that there's something that's getting in the way of that. Paul says, once you were dead, because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. Paul is directly referencing the Genesis account. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. We'll just take a really brief look at that. Genesis 1, 26 and 28. This is where everything begins as it relates to this intersection of the divine and the natural and this tearing, this catastrophic event that happened. So 126, then God said, let us make human beings in our image. We could do an interesting study on the pluralized us, but we won't today. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. I just want to pause there. When the Bible talks about being made in the image of God, it's not simply just referencing our ability to have intellect or conscience, to know the difference between right and wrong and good and bad and all of that stuff. What is actually under the surface there is better reflected maybe with a sense to image the presence of God on the earth, to be imagers, to be uh, essentially like a royal magistrate on the earth. That what we do is we carry the kingdom of our king with us where we walk on the earth. The, the visual of this would be like a, a monarch in Old Testament times or even now, a monarch entrusting a royal decree with one of his subjects and saying, go out into my territory, go out into my land and all over my kingdom and bring what I possess to it. Carry my image, carry my DNA, carry it, reflect it, image it. And what God is saying here as he opens Genesis is that he's created us for a reason. Not just to be intellectual, emotionally, um, you know, have a high capacity in those ways, but he's created us to carry and reflect his image on the earth, his sovereign rule and reign on the earth. So that's what happens. Genesis 2. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and he placed man. There he placed the man he had made. Did you ever catch that before, that the garden was made separately from the other creation? Hebrew scholars and people much smarter than myself um, actually believe, like when you look into the original language and the original historical context, that that garden was specifically made to be a place where the divine met earth. It's a place where God himself walked with man, where the supernatural met the natural. And the design of God, 
Uh, Pastor Brenda's talked about this before. The design of God was that we would extend the boundaries of that to fill the whole earth. That the whole earth, every square inch of it, would be a place for the divine and the natural to live in harmony together. So God creates this garden, puts man in it, and uh, things seem like they're going splendidly. Of course, we know um, that they don't. Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of the trees in the garden? She's lying already, distorting God's truth. Of course, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So a couple just quick observations here. One, I don't think that this is um, a commentary on God's creation in terms of snakes and serpents and animals and all of that stuff. Two, um, isn't it interesting that Adam and Eve are not afraid or shocked in this conversation? That this spiritual being that approaches them doesn't frighten them, doesn't send them running for the hills. There seems to be a familiarity that has already built up over however much time. Number three, in this garden account, we see the serpent, who the Bible calls Satan or the devil, playing on the vision and the calling of God for humanity. And he's saying, look, you're not fully like us, You're made in the image of God, but it says in the New Testament that even Jesus was made a little lower than the angels while he lived on this earth. So you're kind of half there, but you're not fully there. And there's something that God is hiding from you. And if you could just actually eat this fruit and figure it out, then you'll be like us. You'll be like the rest of God's divine creation. But for now, there's something deficient and defective about you. And he tempts Adam and Eve to seek for themselves something that they were never created for. We were created to live in relationship with the Most High, in fellowship with him. But a fellowship of difference, not sameness. We were not created to be God. We were created to love God. And so there's this fracturing that takes place. This is what Paul is talking about when he references the powers of the unseen world, the supernatural exchange that takes place where heaven and earth collide. We talked last week about the reality that uh, in uh, verses uh, and sections of the Bible like Genesis 11 gives us sort of the, the narrative of, of this other rebellion in heaven. And we read from Psalm 82 where God is judging 
the created beings, the supernatural beings that he's made, he's judging them because they're ruling unjustly. He's given them authority and dominion and roles and responsibilities and they're abusing their power. So God disinherits them and he splits up and disinherits the earth. And this is a result of the fall. Paul mentions here, as we just closed this morning, Paul mentions that this has an impact in our lives in three specific ways. We're just going to touch on the first two really quickly here. Number one, what happened in the Garden of Eden puts us all under three influences that drag us away and pull us away from the purposes of God over our life. One is the world. Jesus even recognized when the devil said that he wanted to give him the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus didn't contest that the devil was the ruler of the world. This whole world is under the rule spiritually of an enemy force. And that first sphere of confrontation is external. And it's the world that's under the control. Paul uses language like principalities, rulers, authorities in the unseen realm. That somehow, in some cosmic way, nothing is taking place on this earth that is not happening and being initiated in the spiritual realm. The garbage that's going on on this earth is not a product of God's design. It's a product of rebellion and sin. It's a product of these heavenly beings wanting to rip from God what is his alone, which is all glory and honor. And so there's this rebellion that's taking place in the world, and that manifests itself in us. Uh, we, we, we feel even at this present time like, like we need to adopt and accept the, the weight of culture on us, that somehow the cultural moment we're in needs to actually twist and, and, and distort and manipulate what's true. And so the culture says, no, truth is this ever-evolving thing. And you have to bend to what's happening in culture now. Truth is not exclusive. Truth is not constant. And so our culture, this world, is putting us in a vice right now. It's putting Christianity and faith in a vice and demanding that it bend and it flex to the cultural moment we're in. But that is not, that is not what the Bible invites us to do. When the culture is speaking things over your life, declaring things about your identity and your purpose and what is true and what is not true. The Bible doesn't morph and flex and bend. It stands strong and solid. The Bible supersedes culture. But the reason culture is pressing so hard is because there's a spiritual influence behind it. Paul called the Corinthians to sever ties, not with culture, but with the practices of sin and idolatry in culture. 
So we have this contrast of living in the world, but not of the world. We're not, Jesus isn't saying, go run away and hide in a cave somewhere in Africa or Syria. <laughs> He's saying there's a way for you to walk in the culture, but not be overcome by the culture, by the cultural moment that we're in. If you think about cultural moments, just think about your grandparents. What was normative for them in their culture? What, did, did your grandparents and my grandparents, when they worked for their whole life, did they run around and say, ah, I'm just looking for a job that makes me happy and fulfills my calling, and I'm just looking you know, for a job that just causes me to come alive? No, they worked because they had to. They worked for 30 or 40 or 50 years in the same job because they felt it was their responsibility in society and in their family. They weren't asking the questions we're asking now. They weren't asking themselves, does this make you happy? Does this kind of turn your crank? They weren't asking that. If you asked your grandparents right now if their job made them happy, they'd probably say, are you kidding me? Why is that even relevant to the conversation? Who cares? It was my responsibility. They lived in a different cultural moment. And your grandkids or great-grandkids, I'm sure if they were going to ask us questions, they'd look at us like we're aliens right now. We don't make our decisions and live lives based on the pressure and the weight of culture on us. Culture is not a foundation that you want to put your life onto. But the word of God is one that you can trust. It's been around for thousands of years. It's endured empires and cultures and epochs of time. So the first influence of sin and evil is the world and culture. If you want to read more about that, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, Paul actually goes as far as to say that behind the world's religions are demonic powers. I'm going to say something that's going to probably infuriate some of you. This will be my closing comment, so then you can go home and <laughs> stew on it. I've been processing this, and my wife is already looking down at the ground. <laughs> Amazing. So here's this dynamic that we need to live with today. We're not called to run away and be scared and hide in a cave. If you have given your life to Jesus, you are a son or daughter of the Most High. You're a child of God. You have authority and power to carry his kingdom on the earth. But do not be naive at what you're playing with and tampering with. Paul actually says when you engage in these different uh, rituals, rites, uh, different forms of worship that they experience there, you are engaging with demonic powers. You know, I think one that we've normalized in Western culture is yoga. And some of you are really mad right now because you've been figuring out seven ways from Sunday on how to justify it. I want to I clarify what I'm about to say. If you ask 
the cultures that actually stewarded and created yoga thousands of years ago, they will say, absolutely, you cannot separate the spiritual from the physical. That actually yoga means union. And the whole point of it is for spiritual union. That's the whole point of it. But we, in our culture, and this is what Paul would rail against, we say, no, 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 we're just going to, you know what, I'm just going to meditate on Jesus while I'm doing that. So I'm going to go to the yoga studio, but I'm just going to think about Jesus and pray good things. And Paul would say, you're crazy. You're crazy if you think that you can do that and not make yourself vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. You're crazy if you think that you can live and just kind of be uh, careless and reckless with your life and, and feel like you're not going to make yourself vulnerable to the influence of the enemy of God, these sons of God that are on the earth to destroy the work of God. Can you do poses and stretches for health? Yeah, sure. But I want to challenge you this is an area that, we, that people, I mean, people get really worked up about this. But I want to challenge you. Can you go into a yoga studio that's burning incense to spiritual deities, being led by somebody whose goal is for spiritual union with spiritual forces of Lord knows what, and not be impacted by that? I'm not saying at all, so hear me clearly, I'm not saying that you don't have authority over that. But what I'm saying is we walk around in our culture exposing ourselves to vulnerability all over the place and we wonder why we have no control over our emotions, over our will, over our intellect, over our lives. We're, we're coming apart at the seams. And yet we're walking around oblivious to what is happening in the spiritual realm around us. And Paul would say, and he would say to the Ephesians, look, wise up. Wise up. There is an intersection between the spiritual and the natural that you need to be aware of. That the influence of culture in our world can have a dramatic effect on your life and not in a good way. Again, I'm not preaching that we run around with crosses everywhere and you know, spraying uh, oil and like holy water. That's not what I'm saying. We don't need to walk in fear either. But we don't walk in fear because we know who we are as sons and daughters of God. And my desire for you and I it's not that we create a list of rules and things that we can and can't do and places we're afraid to go and, you know, all of this stuff. We're having these conversations with our kids right now about Halloween and all that stuff. We don't run and hide in the basement on October 31st. I go out for candy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just... And preaching. No, I don't do that because I'm more interested in candy. But God has designed you and created you to walk in life and in victory. And this world is speaking things over your life and my life. It's speaking words over us and it's declaring things about us, about your identity and my identity 
that are lies from the pit of hell. And if you're not aware of what's happening in the supernatural realm, you'll be more vulnerable to walk into stuff that actually enslaves you and hurts you. But God's heart is that you'd walk in freedom, not in fear, but in victory as his sons and daughters. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church at and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.